Marcus Brickstock, hello. Hello. You've just finished a festival, haven't you? In yes. the Alps. Oh, yes, yes. The Altitude Festival. My little extravagance in the mountains. Yeah, it's great. Really good. We had um, Ardlo Hanlon and Omid Jalili and Katie Tunstall and loads of other people. The Dub Pistols all came out and oh, it was fantastic. Just to explain, we had Andrew Maxwell on the podcast a couple of weeks Hooray! before it who was talking, telling us about it. Yeah. And you run it with him, right? Yeah. And yeah, this yeah. is in Marybell. Exactly, yeah. And so it's comedians and bands and snowboarding. Exactly. Can you imagine anything better than that? Honestly, it's just the most joyful, ridiculous thing. Everyone gets up whenever they get up, go up the mountain, throw themselves down it strapped to a plank and then tell jokes and listen to bands and DJs all night. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from YesYesMarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. And he said that you have French comedians as well. Yeah, we do. May we. And they're variously uh, sort of moderately funny, not funny at all, and occasionally hilarious. You speak a bit of French, don't yeah. you? Yeah, Because yeah. you did a TV show where you had to learn it. Did you know any French before this? I'd done French up to, you know, normal level, up till I was about 16, did GCSE, and then I hadn't spoken French for about probably 17 years, actually. And then, uh, yeah, I had four weeks to learn French and do stand-up in French in Paris which was this absolutely the scariest gig I've ever had in my life by a distance but really good actually French crowds were great uh, yeah no it was it was excellent I spent the month with Esther Ranson and Ron Atkinson how was that? it was a little odd yeah a little strange um, yeah I mean they're not people that I would sort of we don't. We haven't really been in touch since I've seen Esther a couple of times and of course now that she's running to be an MP or think she is, perhaps I'll see more of her. <laughs> but so your French, presumably pretty good now. It's not bad. Yeah. So that meant yeah, you could yeah. understand the comedians, because uh, Maxwell was saying that he couldn't understand a word that anyone was saying. No, nothing. Nothing at all. He just stands at the side while they're talking and dances. And if he hears everybody laughing, he leans round the curtain and wonders why, just shrugs his shoulders and stuff. <laughs> I can understand some of it, but obviously, you know, when they're doing comedy, they're using a lot of... Um, you know, kind of phrases that I don't necessarily understand and talking quite quickly as well. But do you still laugh like... Yeah, yeah, I laugh like I've understood everything. That's important. <laughs> you know, right. like how you do with a waiter when you think he's being funny and you just go, yes. And what? presumably particular as well in front of your English friends to exactly. go, I've understood. Yeah, yeah, no, I've understood all of that. <laughs> One of the comics we brought out, Nick Doody, um, simultaneously, spontaneously translated his set into French. That's wow. A, that's stunning. And got the timing and the nuances exactly right. He's incredible. Good Lord. Yeah. That's amazing. So, Marcus, we've actually met before, quite a long time ago. I was at... I think your first gig, or maybe your second, I came to see really? you. And interestingly enough, it was the first stand-up I ever saw. Wow. The uh, first live stand-up. Um, it was at Ashton Court Festival okay, yeah, in no, Bristol. That, that was one of the very earliest, yeah. And I'd gone along with my brother and they'd all gone off to go and watch trip-hop bands. But I thought, right. mm, comedy, that looks fun. And came in and saw your set. And I've got to admit that I was smitten, basically, oh, from then you. onwards. Thank you very and much. I've kind of, you know, been to see so much comedy since and worked with a lot of comedy. But that was the first thing that I was like, oh, my God, this well, is amazing. Well, how cool is that? 
Yeah. Well, it was a very similar experience for me. That was one of the first gigs I ever did, and I was absolutely at that moment just, this is incredible. Tell me, please, I can make a living from doing this. No, it was lovely. In a beautiful park as well. Yeah. Oh, those were the days. <laughs> Six minutes of bulletproof material. <laughs> so you were a student then, right? I was, yeah. So your first kind of raising to stand up yeah, when you were yeah. a student. Yeah. And how did it progress from there? into? Well, I was seeing a double act with a guy called Danny Robbins, who I still work with. And... Um, and we kind of, we did double act stand up together and then I was doing a bit of stand up on my own and, you know, played various places. And then in 96, I won an award at the Edinburgh Festival, which actually, you know, the award was in some ways quite insignificant. It was the BBC New Comedian of the Year. But as far as I was concerned, I was then like the best comedian in the world and I'd won a gong to prove it. And actually as a comic, especially a new comic, without wanting to be too arrogant, that's kind of what you need. You sort of need to walk on every stage going, it's all right, everyone. I'm definitely funny. You don't need to worry. Because with a lot of new comics, you know, they're, they're actually really funny, but they don't know it. And they'll walk on and they're a bit apologetic and then the audience senses weakness <laughs> and then they go in and they kind of devour them. But I had that to sort of build me up and it also helped me to get gigs, you know, because I said, like, I've won this award and people go, all right, we'll give you a chance then. So um, I had a lot of confidence and... Uh, by the end of a year about eight minutes of material and just built it from there and the Edinburgh Festival has been very important in my development as a comic in all the, you know for stand-up character stuff topical stuff everything so you went from there to go and do quite a lot of radio yeah bits of just a minute and that kind of thing but also yeah. uh, having a regular spot on the now show exactly and then where from... I sharpen my teeth yeah <laughs> and then from that you've done TV you've done loads of telly yeah you've of, done loads of, of very different quality, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's important to point that out I mean you've, you've kind of done programs you did that program We Are History where it was a good one yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and then spots on have i got news for you you was hosted also good. it yeah yeah, uh, yeah you've done qi would i lie to you i sucked on qi that's Did you? worth mentioning yes okay. <laughs> i was in a room with stephen fry which was enough that i could barely speak just sort of oh stephen fry brilliant and instead of sort of trying to be funny from the things he said i just sat there going yeah brilliant <laughs> it was really really awful i don't think they'll book me again you've done a lot of non-comedy tv stuff as well though you were on the right stuff with the whole ross brand scandal oh yeah 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 no i got very i got very angry i mean partly because it just went on and on and on when it wasn't that much of a story it was a joke it was just a joke not a very good joke uh, for my personal tastes. Didn't like it very much, thought it was tasteless. But not very important in the scheme of things. Just not that important. She was, after all, one of Satan's sluts and had, after all, definitely had sex with Russell Brand over what I'm led to believe was an extended period of time. So, you know, just a non-story. Anyway, it seemed to make everybody else around me gasp. And you went on Question Time as well. I was on Question Time, yeah. I wasn't very funny on Question Time, but actually That's... I got told off. Oh, did you? Yeah, I what did. What for? Well, it was around the time of whether or not we should have a referendum on the, uh, on the Lisbon Treaty. And uh, instead of just offering my opinion, I asked the audience, um, how many of you think we should have a vote? And nearly all put their hands up. And I said, OK, keep your hands up if you've read the Lisbon Treaty. And everybody's hand went down. And I went, well, yeah, until we're better informed, let's just wait until we decide on things as important as that. And everybody on the panel got furious with me. So, you know, I, I stuck my oar in. I'd know. say that's an achievement. And yeah. also... 
perhaps a career-defining moment. You were on Ski Sunday. I was on Ski Sunday, yeah, which was, uh, that was a thrill, an absolute thrill, um, with uh, with Graham Bell, the uh, the Olympic athlete, who, Graham is like super friendly, really, really lovely guy, until I did quite badly in the skiing, and then he sort of didn't know how to be with me anymore. <laughs> he's like, he's such a sport billy. You know, that if you're not also, if you don't have that pure competitive drive, which I really, really don't. I'm like, I like going fast on skis or on a snowboard, but I'm kind of, I don't want to die, you know. So I kind of held back a bit. And uh, when I got down, Graham was just like, yeah, okay, well, there we go. Better go and get lunch, I suppose. (laughs) But it was very exciting. I'm really, uh, you know, they forced me to ski and I, I can't really ski um, so uh, I'm waiting for them to ask me back to do some snowboarding. Right. That'll be better. Well, maybe they'll listen to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'll get the hint. Yeah. So then you had probably the TV show you're best known for was The Late Edition on BBC yeah. Four. Yeah. And this, uh, for anyone that doesn't know, is um, a lot of people compare it to The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. It's you. Good, I hope they do. That's what I was aiming for. And, and you know, unashamedly so. There was no sense in which we sort of went, oh, it's a bit like The Daily Show. I hope no one finds out out daily show is a fantastic show and john stewart is a huge hero of mine and i felt for a long time that this country needs one of those shows i would settle for any number of people hosting it but if no one else is going to do it then i definitely am whether i'm the best person for the job or not so uh so i i really you know i really wanted to create that and we did it for god we made 50 something live shows it was the only live comedy show on on tv um, it's gone now, but I, I'm hoping we'll be back in a new and improved form sometime. Well, at the moment, you're touring a version of that. We'll come back yeah. to that, the yeah. early edition. Uh, I just want to talk about a couple of other telly things you did. You worked with Anne Robinson. Yeah, low point. Okay. Real low point. It was, do you know, I worked with Anne on a show called What's the Problem with Anne Robinson? And I really thought, I genuinely thought as we went into it, okay, here's a woman who was successful in Fleet Street. She was great on Watchdog. I know that's a bizarre thing to say, but she was. She would take on the leaders of various industries and just go, no, not good enough. You've let people down. And she was really on the spot, you know. And then the Weakest Link phenomenon was was kind of interesting to begin with. And her biography is really interesting and honest. And I thought, well, this is a, a fascinating person to work with. Um, but uh, she's mean. She's just just mean in a way that I think prevents her from being as interesting as she could and should be. I mean, she's much more horrible off camera than she is on. Really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's There's quite an achievement. Of, uh, yeah, no, exactly. There's loads of what I call muscle flexing. You know when kids bully each other, it's really tragic, and you sort of look and think, oh, children are awful. When adults bully each other, and I mean really bully each other, I, it m- actually makes me feel physically sick. You sort of think, how have you not realised that that's not okay? And she's a bully. She's wow. brilliant. Yeah, she go, she will walk into the room and identify the weakest link and just go for them. Just absolutely go for them. Bizarre. Very That's strange. Because you just assume it's an act, it's been successful. No, no, no. So. I don't know what drives it in her, but it's um, it's horrible. So it was a really a desperate um, five weeks of, of my life. And I was, I should have, I pro- with hindsight, I probably should have walked off the show. Probably. So how did you go in and work with something that you dislike? Well, I so don't much? know really. I mean we did a pilot and I was very much left to my own devices, you know, to be funny in between Anne doing what she was doing. And then the pilot was sort of okay. It had enough elements that worked. And then when we actually made the show, 
it was sort of me being funny a bit nearer to Anne, which gave her the opportunity to undermine what I was doing. And, and, and just, I mean, on one occasion, I was sort of doing a bit and she just went, yes, I think that's enough from you. And just stopped it and just went on. You know, all her stuff was on uh, auto cue, and Ooh, mine was, you know, I was trying to be spontaneously funny and she just went, no, that's it, move on now. I was furious. I mean, just absolutely livid. So, no, it was a, it was a dark and awful time. So in the later weeks, were you coming in and sort of scowling each other from opposite sides of the room and then coming on camera and going, hi? You know, We actually, we barely saw each other other than on the, on the set. There was really no contact. Once she got Kelvin McKenzie on, you know, who used to edit The Sun, uh, who I really have no time for at all, and the two of them had a sort of Fleet Street love-in saying, you know, how clever they were as journalists, and he made a defence of some absolutely indefensible things that he'd done. I just thought, oh, you know what? This is is beneath contempt. So... um, Anyway, it was a very low point in my career. And for anyone who saw it, I can only apologise. Well, going from that low, low point, you then worked with uh, someone who's practically royalty, Trevor McDonald. Big Trev. Big Trev. And you see, he's awesome. And you go into something like that in a similar way. You think, well, here's an institution. This will be really interesting. I'll get to know somebody who knows a lot about politics. My only frustration with working with Trevor was that there was loads of stuff I wanted to bring him in on because I knew that he knew. He's, you know, he's interviewed Bush. He's interviewed Blair several times. You know, he, re- he actually knows these people. And off camera, he's brilliantly indiscreet. And the moment there's a camera on him, he's like, uh, uh, well, uh, no, I'm not going to say too much about that. And, uh, and just he just batted everything back. So I kind of, if that series ever comes back... It's called Newsnight. News yeah, they're saying it might come back. I don't know. My aim will be to coax uh, the goodies out of Sir Trev. Can you say anything he said? Uh, he was very interesting about Blair's biography. And we were flipping through it. The one that... Um, or the, the Blair years by Alistair Campbell. And we were flipping through it beforehand. And he was basically just going, that's a lie that's a lie, <laughs> that's a lie, that's a lie. And then on, on camera, I went, uh, we were talking about it and I, you know, uh, getting things going. And then I said, uh, so Trev, have you had a look at the book? And he basically went, no, <laughs> no, no, I haven't seen it. What book? Don't know what you're talking about. Wow. So, uh, yeah. God, what an amazing... But these people have had, you know, that's why I'm fascinated, including people like Anne, because they've they've met and spent time with incredible people and been in environments that I find fascinating. You know, I mean, Bush, Bush is such was such an amazing sort of phenomenon. How does someone who's as incurious as that rise to a position? I mean, whether he's thick or not is neither here nor there. He's incurious. He asked no questions. His security briefing, right? They all get one. The new president gets a security briefing, which apparently lasts three or four hours, where you are then told everything like did you know that such and such and you know and this is how Kennedy really died and all the rest of it and apparently the briefing's about three hours and then most new presidents stay in for another five hours or more just going so that means if x equals y then you know and they're fascinated apparently Bush's briefing he just went okay thank you very much and just left the room no further questions your honor like how how can someone that incurious so I'm I'm fascinated by anyone who's who's met these people and spent time with them and Blair as well you know I'm I mean, we were, we were absolutely captured, enraptured by Blair in 97. 
it was so exciting. I was a student. We've all voted for him. And it was like, oh, wow, we've all grown up under a conservative government. And here we go. This is the beginnings of change. And here we go. And then nothing happened. And, you know, so the people who've actually met him and interviewed him, I'm, I'm always dying to know, like, well, you know, did you see beyond the grin? Did you, did you find anything there? And they always say, no, not really. <laughs> well, talking of such things, how are you with Obama? Well, very excited. And I haven't let the disappointment that came from the Blair experience diminish my excitement with Obama. I mean, he can really talk. And, and if you can really talk, you must be able to really think. And, and I'm convinced absolutely that he can really think. And uh, so I'm, I'm very excited by that. And I hope that he raises political debate beyond where it's been in the States between just you have to be scared. You must be frightened all the time because that way we can achieve this and we will keep making you scared. And he's actually, I hope, beginning to put about the idea, listen, everyone, don't be scared. There's some bad things out there, but we'll try and get on top of them and generally we'll all be okay because fear is such a bad motivator. So, no, I'm, I'm thrilled, very excited. And, uh, you know, that said, he'll probably let people down. It's a nightmare for comedy. It's <laughs> terrific. I mean, how do you undo the untouchable like him, you know? I mean, we're, we're still having to... Um, I'm still having anyway. Others, I'm sure, are not. But uh, to look at what other people are saying. I mean, Dick Cheney said... They were talking about all this torture stuff that's come out. And Dick Cheney came out and said, uh, why is no one talking about how effective these methods are? Well, because it's not the point, Dick. You know, it's not like saying, listen, it may have been wrong, but we caught a lot of witches in those ducking stills, you know, and they're not around anymore. It's crazy. And it turns out Donald Rumsfeld on Bush's security briefings would put quotes from the Bible. So he'd have genuine intelligence information, you know, about Iraq or Afghanistan and then clad yourself in the armour of God, quotes from the Bible to help him on his way, to help him to understand or make the incurious go, we must be doing the right thing, says so in the Bible. You know, it's uh, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. But no, Obama's a great a great cause for hope at at what seems to be a pretty dark time in the world, although I'm not convinced that capitalism having one of its legs chopped off is necessarily a dreadful thing we'll we'll see <laughs> to go back to the tv stuff you've done yeah. you've done bits of acting as well yeah yeah uh, you were in the savages on mm-hmm. bbc one you were in vacant possession <laughs> the savages what? was well we've, we've the savages was written by simon nye who wrote men behaving badly i had the lead role with jeffrey palmer playing my dad and a fantastic actress called victoria hamilton playing my wife and it was great and we were filming it out at teddington studios and the execs from the bbc were coming out and they were taking us out for lunch and they were talking big things and you know and this will run and run and run and it was all you know huge and at the same time um ricky gervais and steve merchant and a few of that lot were filming something in the next door studio and no one ever came to see them and and i'd have lunch with them and they'd all be like you know can, can I borrow a fiver so I can get some chips you know and um, and I'd sit with them and go so what are you filming guys and they were well it's a thing set in an office and I was like oh right okay and what's it called well it's just, it's just called The Office and I was like oh man these poor idiots you know they've been sent out here on their own there's kind of no one helping them and who's directing and Steve Merchant who's like nine foot tall put his huge arm in the air and went I am (laughs) and I kind of was like oh mercy me you know because I'd known Steve as a stand-up he was very good but I thought and uh, then of course the first episode of The Office went out just as my series sunk without trace (laughs) and disappeared forever and I saw the first episode of The Office and just went oh man did I ever back the wrong horse (laughs) 
didn't matter. I mean, I like being entertained more than I enjoy entertaining people, actually. So um, I wrote a thing in The Guardian about how brilliant The Office was at the end of the first series. And I'd said in it how much I'd love to be in something as brilliant as that. And Steve Merchant phoned me up and said, oh, I read your thing in The Guardian. You know, thanks so much. That's really kind. It was lovely. And, uh, you know, and we're, we're about to start shooting um, uh, series two. And it's, um, well, I just wanted to phone and say how lovely it is to know that you like it. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> well, you've done more successful things than that. You did. Uh, well, you've done a couple of movies. Yeah. You were in the Kevin Spacey one, Beyond the Sea. Yeah, yeah. What was it like working with him? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I was invited round to his hotel room, uh, which is an exciting thing anyway. And I walked in. I can't remember what got it going. I think Stephen Fry, actually. Something was said about Stephen Fry. And I kind of went, as I sat down. And Kevin is the most fantastic impressionist. I mean, really, like, just so brilliant you can't believe it and he started doing Stephen Fry and it was great and then he started just dipping into the wig bag and doing loads of other voices and stuff and the two of us just sat there doing impressions for 10-15 minutes you know and uh, and that was really good fun and then he uh, he said at the end he said well that all seems good and uh, and you can act and stuff can you and I went (laughs) yeah 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 sure and um, he went great we'll come out to Berlin then and that was it that was the casting Wow. For it, I mean, it was a tiny role; it didn't matter. But yeah, I was on. I went to Berlin for a few days with him and John Goodman on this film set with watching Kevin work. I mean, the film the film didn't didn't hit many people because Bobby Darren's just not a big enough subject. Most people don't care. But it's a fascinating film, and to see him direct and act, and actually, he was playing two roles at once because he was playing Bobby Darren, who was playing a character that Darren had played in a film, uh, was incredible. Really incredible. Brilliant. And then you did Love Actually. I did Love Actually, yeah, yeah. Which is huge. Yeah, it's a massive, massive film. You played uh, the DJ who was interviewing Bill Nye. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Something that most of my comedy mates have given me a very hard time about because it was broadly hated. Do you know what? Most people I know, it splits them. Like People either absolutely can't stand it or it's their total favourite film ever. And I don't mean just girls. One of of my friends who's he's a singer in a band... Uh, I shouldn't name who they are in case it shames him, but it's his favourite film ever. Really? Made. Oh, that's yeah. nice to know. It um, for me, I, th- I think there are nine storylines in uh, Love Actually, and I think I liked six of them, and I think three of them didn't work for me. You know, didn't sort of all tie together at the end. But what I what I do know, and you you watch it differently from having done this, you know, is working with Richard Curtis who, for his biggest critics, it's really worth knowing, he spends more than half of every year just trying to make life better for people in Africa and the other comic relief charities, just doing that for nothing. All right, he's got a lot of money, maybe he can spare that time. But he is a hugely... Uh, empathetic and sympathetic and kind man and he definitely when he talks about that opening thing saying you know I look around and I don't see that I see that love actually does exist he absolutely means it he means it with with all of his being and when you look at it from that point of view instead of like oh well rubbish you know uh, smaltzy sentimental stuff when you know for sure that the person making it means it as a statement of fact it's actually uh it was great to be involved with and quite moving and very sweet and bits of it are very funny. 
Um, the Colin Frissell character who's played from the... Oh, God, what's, what's the fella's name from my family? Yeah, Chris Marshall. I love that storyline. It's great. Really, really funny. Makes me laugh every time. Not that I sit and watch it very often. <laughs> <laughs> Worn down. On that yeah, one exactly. So then going back to the TV stuff, you did, I've never seen Star Wars. It started out as a radio program yeah. and then it went to a TV thing. So this is when you get people to do stuff that they've never done before. Exactly. You got Nigel Havers to get a tattoo. Havers got inked. How rock and roll is that? And we asked everybody on the show, the idea is it's things that anybody could achieve. It's not just, you know, magic celeb stuff. So, you know, I've never been whatever it is. I suppose you could be fired out of a cannon. But, you know, it's not like really out there stuff. It's ordinary things any anybody could do. So we ask everybody, you know, have you ever had a tattoo? Most people say no. You go, well, would you have one for a, for a BBC4 show? And they go, well, no, obviously not. I'll read a book instead. And Havers just went, yeah, all right then. And we were like, okay, um, uh, have you always wanted a tattoo? And he went, no, not really. No, <laughs> just um, if you ask, I will I will obey. So he's had a, a lovely big scorpion put on his left arm and uh, hadn't told his wife, who was away in the States. He said, yeah, no, I'm going back to America and um, yeah, I'll have to tell her. Do you know what happened when he did? I've no idea. No, she, I haven't had an angry letter from her yet. So I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe got, she's just biding her time. We got John Humphreys from the Today programme to do a moonwalk, which was just a, a lovely thing. I made him listen to Thriller, was how it came about. He'd never really listened to Michael Jackson. And obviously the Today programme has reported many times on popular culture and he talked about Michael Jackson a lot, but had never heard Thriller. So, And he loved it. And I think he loved it sort of uh, through the prism of childhood enjoyment because his son really liked it. And uh, yeah, and then he did a moonwalk and wants to go and see Michael Jackson in the whatever dates are left when he's finished cancelling them. That's awesome. You're basically going around just changing people's lives. Trying to. I made uh, John Humphreys listen to Chris Miles because obviously their shows are on at the same time. And just seeing John's face as he had to listen to Chris Miles was uh, was a joy. I'd like to get Miles on and make him listen to the Today programme. Next uh, series. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so then, uh, and then the most recent TV thing you've been doing is Argumental, yeah. which is this show on Dave, and yeah. it's it's the first thing they've commissioned, wasn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, i got to say, I mean, well, you've heard, a lot of shows you go in, no one sets out to make a bad TV programme. You know, it's hard to believe that given how bad a lot of them are, but everyone sets out with the best intentions. This brand new show is fun to do from the get go, you know, really, really fun, plays to the strengths of stand ups. You get up, you do five minutes on a subject, and then you sit down and banter. You know, what's not to like? Shall we just explain the concept briefly? Yeah, so yeah, it's... yeah. John Sargent hosts it, and he will just say to me, okay, Marcus you have to argue the Iraq war has been an unqualified success. Go. And then I would have to stand up and argue for five minutes the Iraq war has been a success. And with those big subjects, we prepare them on the day. So you have, you know, you spend a day going, well, we might try that and I might try that. It's not scripted, but it's sort of, you know where you're going. And then you sit down and, and someone else gets up and says it has not been a success. And then you just battle it out with the fantastic Rufus Hound, who uh, I have to say is a sort of energising revelation for me he's such a lovely bloke and very very funny and very clever and you know so uh, no we have a blast on that show I remember watching I watched the very first episode and I remember thinking this is like school debating society yeah and thinking 
how's this going to work? But it really does. Yeah. And you've got some amazing guests on and you've had two series and yeah, it's been yeah. a huge success. Yeah, no, it's great. And I think because the show plays to a stand-up strengths, lots of very good people are keen and willing to be on. You know, because you can lose your credibility very quickly on a bad programme. And uh, I mean, Sean Locke's been on and Phil Jupitus and Andrew Maxwell and Mark Watson. Loads and loads of really great people. We had Will Smith and Chris Addison battling it out on the last series and it was just terrific. So, no, I love doing that. Good fun. Now, you said earlier when we were talking about Ski Sunday, you said, I mean, you know, I'm not competitive. Oh, uh, well, now I am on Argumental. I am very competitive on Argumental. And I get, you can probably see, if you watch the last round, if I know I've lost or I think I'm going to lose, and my shoulders are down, uh, very serious, absolutely playing for the win. And do you know what? With Have I Got News For You or any of those other panel games, the winning and the losing's neither here nor there for the points. But on Argumental, basically, you are getting up as a comic and saying, my five minutes on this subject is funnier and cleverer than anybody else's and the audience will vote there and then with their little cards and say no it wasn't that bloke who we can still all see and you will have to sit with for the next half an hour was funnier and cleverer than you it's a pretty hard pill to swallow you know uh so yeah no we both rufus and myself and actually the guests as well get really into the competition of it and we want to win i heard you threw a tanty at the audience once oh massive yes i did where who told you that i just you research. just heard yeah no i did we do um double recording so you know we t- recording two shows in one night and we were debating about jeremy clarkson and i threw out there as evidence of how stupid people are that there are a lot of people who think that jeremy clarkson should be prime minister and it got a cheer from the audience, a, a real kind of top geary cheer that made me, I just absolutely lost it. The red mist descended and I just went berserk at the audience. Just, you, I won't do all the language, but I was, you people, you're exactly what's wrong with this country. Exactly what's wrong. This kind of thoughtless, jingoistic cheering for some cretin in a car and just really, really went for it. And then basically at the end of this rant, I went... Uh, you know what? Screw you, and screw you for show two as well. And, um, and I'm it guessing was, it didn't do you any favours. No, so bad, so bad. I had to come out at the beginning of the second show and apologise to the audience. I even gave some of them sweets, but it was like they had seen that I absolutely meant it and that I was genuinely furious. And there was no way of backpedalling that, and going, "Hey, come on! How that was pretty funny, wasn't it? Pretending to lose my cool." They were like, "No, you were scary then." You looked like you were going to punch one of us. And uh, so I lost both shows really badly. It kind of sounds like you deserved it. Which is, well, I don't think so. I think that's just more fuel for my hatred of Jeremy Clarkson. So you've done all this TV and stand-up and films and stuff, and then uh, you're quite active in climate change. You went out Mm. to the Arctic with Cape Farewell, Mm -hmm. and you were in the sea with a polar bear? Yes, I was. Yeah, yeah. I... um, Yeah, I've done two trips to the Arctic. One, we sailed from Norway to the east coast of Greenland, and uh, that was terrifying and awful. I mean, it was terrifying in terms of the information that we got on climate change for a kickoff, in terms of sort of apocalyptic, scary, seeing it firsthand, actually watching the results as these probes come out of the sea and going, oh dear, 
oh, that's not good. Um, and also terrifying because we crossed that ocean for, it was nine, nine and a half days before we saw land. And uh, I honestly thought I was going to die. It was, it was horrific. And then we, anyway, we got into a fjord on the east coast of Greenland and uh, I got into the sea in this like survival suit thing. And as I was climbing down the ladder, one of the guys on the boat went, oh, look, there's a seal in the water. And I thought, oh, great, that'll make the film really interesting. You know, me in the water with some of the uh, nature here and stuff. And then as it came nearer, he went, oh, no, hang on, it's not a seal. It's a polar bear with two cubs on her back. And... Uh, and it was just just ridiculous. We'd seen no polar bears at all. And uh, there I was in the water with this bear. And you see her in the film, which eventually will be released. But you see her swimming across this fjord, carrying her cubs. And then she just sort of sniffs and turns her head and starts paddling straight towards me. I was out. I was back on the boat by this stage. But, um, but yeah, no, it was really scary. And actually... The sort of, uh, you know, as well as my own personal fear, the tragedy of it was that at that time of year, where we were should have been frozen. It's a hunting area for the bears. They stand on the ice and that's how they catch their food to feed their cubs. And she was swimming because none of it was frozen. So she swam two miles carrying her cubs and then climbed a mountain and down the other side to the next fjord in the hope that that would be frozen. So it was sort of a you know an amazing experience to see a polar bear in the wild and and be swimming with it um but at the same time sort of more evidence obviously that doesn't prove that mankind is causing climate change but that it's happening and it's having a profound effect and then the the next trip i did was sailing up the west coast of greenland with jarvis cocker katie tunstall martha wainwright um feist laurie anderson i mean it was the coolest possible i was in muso fanboy heaven um and on several occasions they got up you know jarvis got up and sang uh, babies which is one of my favorite pulp songs with martha wainwright and feist doing backing vocals shlomo who's like the best beatboxer in the world doing beats Ryuichi sakamoto playing keyboards he's a, an oscar-winning composer and katie tunstall doing the sound levels and various other bits and pieces i mean it was just mind-blowing so that was very cool. And then obviously more research on climate change and meeting Inuit people, uh, which was great because they you get a very non-political version of it from them. You know, they're not scientists, they're not politicians, they're not members of the IPCC. They're just people that live there and they go, yeah, sure. When I was born, that glacier used to come down to here. Uh, now, if you want to see the glacier, it's two and a half miles that way. So it's very non-political. It's just straightforward. Like, look, this is the reality of where we live. So, uh, yeah, amazing trips. Amazing. Is that going to come as a film? Yeah, there is a film being made. uh, And I did various crazy things, including doing stand-up on a glacier that if the current rate of change continues as is, the glacier will not be there by the end of my life, assuming I live. You know, sort of weird things to do. You sort of stand on this thing. You cannot imagine it disappearing but it is every year. So, um, yeah, and hopefully a, a great film will be put out there at some stage. But there's a reluctance for people to really engage with climate change because unlike most other things, you know, there hasn't been anything since slavery that required everybody in the developed world to actually make a few sacrifices. With slavery, it was against our best interests. William Wilberforce stood up and said, listen, I know life will be harder, but you need to get rid of your staff this is not okay. Uh, This affects people's lives in a hugely negative way. And with the power of his oratory and his rhetoric, he managed, with plenty of others, to 
have slavery abolished and we moved on and the world is better for it and climate change needs a sort of William Wilberforce and I, I'm not it um, but I'm, I try to do stuff when I'm doing stand-up to make climate change funny to try and make it a subject that people can engage with and not make it this sort of you know the boogeyman that's out there that will destroy us all because it's not like that actually you know it's eminently fixable is it? yeah 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 at different degrees you know we will some effects of climate change are here already and will have a terrible negative impact um but we can get off the descending lift at any floor and start working our way back up it's up to us we can carry on all the way down until we reach these various terrifying tipping points that um james lovelock and others talk about and then it's sort of doomsday and all the rest of it but no we can turn it around and actually people in this country should be very proud we do we do a really good job over here really good we're still dragging our heels in lots of areas but we've set the highest targets of of any nation on on earth the most ambitious and are really striving towards hitting them i don't think we will we should we must but um but we're doing a lot people in this country are they get it they get it we're not stupid you know if someone's listening now, is there like one thing that you'd be like, if you can only give someone one, you know, switch off the tap when you're brushing your teeth? Or- yeah, it's those things, you know. I mean, I've been really lucky in, in my career. I've ended up doing a job that pays a lot of money. So I've been able to do all manner of solar things and having the house all redone and greened up and all the rest of it. But actually the best stuff you can do is just switch things off when you're done. Switch the telly off at the wall. And actually, do you know, one of the biggest things you can do is not even in the home. It's a hassle to do, but um, bank with the right people. Get your mortgage with the right people. Everyone thinks about climate change in terms of where they are at that moment. Oh, I'm on a plane. I'm the worst person in the world. You're not, actually. Your individual flight somewhere probably does a lot less damage than investing your money with banks and building societies and whoever else that don't care, that are involved in one way or another in destruction of the rainforest or investment in non-green or non-ethical things. That's a really cool thing you can do. Who's change good? Uh, cooperatives, terrific. I think they're I think they're fantastic. I mean, basically, it should be. It's like fair trade. I think it's Andy Zaltzman has a thing like, how come fair trade stuff says it's fair trade? It should be everything else that says unfair trade. There should be a picture of a crying farmer on non-fair trade coffee beans, right? And it's kind of the same with banks. You know, the cooperative and various others like them pursue an ethical investment policy. And that makes them unique. It should be the other way around. Everybody should be pursuing ethical investment policies. And I think we wouldn't be in the trouble we're in if they had done. And then one or two rogue banks who lend money to the Mugabe regime like Barclays did should be identified as the rogues. But being a rogue is kind of the norm. So um, if you have several weeks to unpick your finances, change your bank accounts. That's a cool thing to do. And keep chickens and grow your own vegetables. My family gathered round one pear last year. I have two kids and a wife, and we had we grew one pear. We grow other things, but only one pear, and we we gathered round it and we cut it into four. And it was honestly, <laughs> I, it's really stupid, but it was a, a fantastic moment. We planted that pear tree ourselves with our own hands, and then it it gave us one pear. Two and a half years later, as a thank you for planting me, and this year. Who knows? Maybe two pairs. <laughs> the year after, maybe enough for a small uh, pear tart. So you are kind of at the moment touring this show, the early edition, the early edition which yeah. you're doing with Andre Vincent, yeah. which is like a lunchtime version of the late edition. Yeah, it's it, what we've done is make the TV show first, 
finish with that and then do the show that would otherwise get us a TV show, which is quite nice because, you know, you, you do live things and they're usually with a view to, oh, I hope this gets on telly or radio or whatever. We've done that and it was fine and it was a bit restrictive. With this, we get up early every morning, we read all the newspapers and then four funny people sit down with an audience and the papers and we say, now look, it says here in the Daily Mail that it's all the fault of immigrants but it says here in The Guardian that it isn't. It's all the fault of greedy capitalists. And, you know, whatever it may be, and we just play these things off. And obviously there are funny stories that are just hilarious in their own right. But I think for the audience to see comedians taking stories in, in the different papers and just jousting with them and making people realise that what you read in your one newspaper is not the truth. It's a version of the truth filtered through one paper and so we kind of you know we just make the papers joust and it's, it's great so you're touring around you're playing quite a lot of festivals we are it, it's a b- big festival year for us we're doing latitude we'll be at glastonbury we'll be at camp festival we'll be at the edinburgh festival we've just done the uh foy festival and then we've got the big thing we're doing is this run on the south bank on Sundays, we're doing a kind of uh, the week in review every Sunday. This is at the Udderbelly. Exactly. They're yeah, up they're for... putting the big purple cow uh, on the South Bank. And uh, there's a deal with a restaurant right there. So you can get your Sunday lunch, come and see the show, and, you know, it'll be hilarious. Free tea and coffee. For now, free tea and coffee. Exactly. And uh, jobs are good. The dates I've got here are 7th, 14th, and 21st of June, and the 5th and the 12th of July at 12.30. There's one Sunday we're missing in the middle of there where we will be at Glastonbury. People should come. I mean, that whole scene on the South Bank is going to be great. And we're actually hoping that this will become an ongoing thing that Londoners will do. And your uh, website for live dates and all of this is? MarcusBriggstock.com. Thank you so much for coming on the My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.